Matthew chapter 1 this morning. You know, uh, just out of curiosity, I was doing some, uh, some statistical searching this week, and it turns out what you may not realize is that Christmas is actually a pretty big deal in this country. Uh, one of the, some of the things I found out is that 95% of Americans celebrate Christmas each year, with 74% going to parties and 65% attending a religious service. Somewhere around 42 million Christmas trees, both real and fake, are purchased every year. The U.S. alone produces 1.76 billion candy canes each year. I've only eaten three so far. The Postal Service delivers 15.8 billion cards, letters, and packages between Thanksgiving and Christmas. If you couldn't tell by the decorations and the craziness just trying to go pick up groceries at the store, there is a certain cultural importance to the holidays, especially Christmas. If, if for no other reason, we just it's fun, isn't it? They show fun movies. We get to spend time with our family. Many people enjoy the Christmas season. But for some people, the, the Christmas and the holidays are not that much fun. Uh, some people feel pressure to spend a lot of money on gifts and actually spend much more than they have, charging more than they should uh, to cover the cost of those celebrations. This and other concerns involve, uh, that involve family and life in general leave about 25% of our nation's population with some feelings of depression at Christmas time. Well, where does that leave us this morning? Well, you might be here in the former category, one who is filled with Christmas cheer, one who is enjoying the season, one who is thankful for life, or you might be in the latter category. Gray skies hanging over your thoughts, a lack of certainty about the future. You may be frustrated with life. Whether you are rejoicing or dejected this morning, the person on whom we need to set our attention is no less than Christ himself. For Christians, he is the reason we celebrate far more than gift-giving, far more than time with family. He is the reason for our joy, and he's also the one who gives us hope. So that even this morning, if you feel hopeless, he can reverse your situation. He can bring you out of despair. In order to think about Christ this morning, we want to turn to Matthew's account of his birth in chapter 1. Following on uh, from the very next verse, if you were here last Sunday night for our special uh, Christmas service, uh, we are picking right up where we left off. Matthew tells us this, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. At least three things from this passage should cause us to rejoice and hope in Christ on this Christmas morning. The first thing uh, that should cause us to rejoice and have hope is his supernatural conception. His supernatural conception. 
You know, this message from the angel of God must have been both terrifying and encouraging for Joseph. Matthew focuses on uh, Joseph, but Luke tells us that before an angel appeared to, uh, to him, an angel had first appeared to Mary. She was told that she had found favor with God and that she would be the mother of the Messiah. Now this in and of itself was amazing, but more amazing was the fact that this would happen despite the fact that she was not yet married and she had not had sex. She was still a virgin, though she was the betrothed virgin. Understand that in the first century Jewish culture, uh, betrothal was more than just engagement. You can be engaged and break it off. You can come together, you can put the ring, you can declare, I intend to marry you, and yet uh, it can become obvious, you know what, this isn't going to work. It's better if we don't get married. And some people are disappointed, but that's no big deal. Um, unfortunately, that's not the way it was in the first century. To, to be betrothed to someone was more or less meant that you were married. Though you did not live together, though you did not enjoy the benefits of marriage or consummate the relationship, for all intents and purposes, people considered the couple already married. And so, miraculously, the Holy Spirit creates this human life that is Jesus in Mary's womb. And yet, she hasn't told Joseph about any of this yet. In fact, we're told in Luke that she runs off for, for a few months to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Why would she do that? Well... If you've been around pregnant women, you know why. It's hard to hide a pregnancy after a while. I mean, there are those rare occurrences where someone says, you know, at, at nine months they go in the ER and they deliver, not having any idea they've been pregnant, but that's pretty rare. Particularly in the first century, it would have been obvious and the questions would have come. But Mary knows she can't hide out forever and she has to come back and she has to explain to Joseph what's going on. Now, we have no idea how he found out. Perhaps she just walked into his carpentry shop one day showing uh, perhaps she tried to sit down and explain what was happening. All we don't know the details. All we know is Joseph knew Mary was pregnant and he was not the father. And that would have been devastating to him. Because in seeking to marry Mary, he would have observed in her the very things that God had observed in her. A godly woman. A wonderful wife to be. He would have loved her. He would have adored her. He would have been looking forward. And, and, now, and now all of that seemed to be at threat. It appeared she had been unfaithful to him. She was not the godly woman that she had appeared to be. Matthew clues us in that at this point, lesser men would have taken full advantage of the law of Moses, loudly proclaiming her infidelity while divorcing her, branding her for life. She would have been a single mom, perhaps forever. But Matthew says Joseph was not a lesser man. We read that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There's no show on Joseph's part. There's no desire to punish Mary for her apparent indiscretion. Just a quiet divorce. He probably still loved her. And being a righteous man, Joseph decides, though, it would not be good to continue to marry this unfaithful woman, but to find someone else. So his intention is to break off the betrothal. Matthew says that it's at this point when Joseph is thinking about all of these things, and you can imagine what it was like for him. You can imagine the thoughts running through his head. You can imagine him in the carpentry shop, perhaps uh, sanding down uh, some piece of wood with a plane. And whereas before he would be working fast to get the job done, now his mind is just kind of aimlessly thinking about Mary and the situation as he is slowly planing out this rough piece of wood. How could she do this? 
How could she be someone totally different than who I thought she was? I thought we loved each other. I still love her, but, but I, I, I can't be with her. All of this is swirling in his mind as he lays down to sleep for one more restless night when an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Think of the emotions. Fear. This is an angel of the Lord appearing to you. Relief. Mary has not been unfaithful. Excitement. Then more fear. All these new emotions coming to the situation. God has done something miraculous. She is still a godly and faithful woman. Uh, try and take yourself out of, out of what you already know about the situation and put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You know, we read the Bible, we think miracles, we think all the time. We kind of read it and think, no big deal. That's not the case. You know, we have several thousand years compacted into 66 little books. So everything kind of gets crunched together. We don't realize there are hundreds of years in between God doing anything miraculous. Miracles are still miracles even for the people in the Bible. And especially so here. Yes, God has supernaturally allowed people to conceive throughout the Old Testament, even Mary's own relative Elizabeth, who she went to go see, was beyond the age of having kids, and yet God allowed her to do so. But you understand that always took place in the context of marriage. He always used the normal means of baby-making to bring about his purposes. He did not do that here. He contravened what he had designed and does something amazing, allowing a virgin to conceive and give birth to a child. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes and try to imagine just how completely floored you would be. This isn't just like Abraham and Sarah. This is like nothing else you've ever heard of before. This is amazing. And that's the point. That's the point. God chose to send his son into this world in part in this way because it would have been so surprising, so startling, so arresting that for those involved and even for the whole world, everybody would stop and take notice. Some of you know who C.S. Lewis is. He was the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, among many other books. And he was also a uh, professor uh, in England of literature. And one time he was in his office at Christmas time and an unbeliever, a, a, a non-Christian friend, wandered in. And there were carolers apparently in the courtyard below singing uh, Christmas hymns. And one of them contained words about Jesus' virgin birth. And his friend was, was looking out the window listening to this and he kind of chuckled to himself. And he turned to C.S. Lewis and said, isn't it good that we now know better than they did? And Lewis said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, isn't it good that we now know more than they did? And again, Lewis said, I'm afraid you're going to have to explain. And his friend went on and said, well, isn't it good that we know now that virgins don't have babies? C.S. Lewis looked at him incredulously and he said, don't you think they knew that? That's the whole point. God desired for Mary and Joseph, for the shepherd, for the magi, for all who would hear of the birth of Jesus Christ to sit up and take notice. Everyone who hears the virgin birth only has two responses. They either laugh in mocking unbelief or they stand in awe believing there is something special about this child. No one ever shrugs it off. Likewise, for us today, we see this supernatural conception that causes us to sit up and take notice. And it's important that we take notice because Jesus was not just conceived supernaturally. He is also a sinless Savior. He's also a sinless Savior. This is the second thing we want to see from our passage this morning. The angel not only explains how the child came to be conceived in Mary, but why. He gives Joseph the whole plan. 
Because surely he's wondering about it, isn't he? Okay, this is great that, that she's not been unfaithful, that there's this uh, birth that, that's going to happen. Uh, and it's going to happen because of godliness and God at work. But why is he doing this? Why is his, he displaying himself through me and my bride like this? And the angel tells him before he even has a chance to ask the question. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Remember at this time, the people of Israel were expecting a savior. They were expecting a Messiah, an anointed king from the line of David. Joseph's dad's name isn't David. Yet he's called Joseph, the son of David. Well, why is he called that? Because David is the most famous, the most godly, the most important king in all the Old Testament. And Joseph is a direct descendant of him. It would be like someone calling you uh, the son of your great, 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 great grandfather or something like that. The angel is already signaling what is about to take place in the life of Jesus. The people of Israel were looking for this Messiah, the son of David, to rule over them and to defeat their enemies. They were, they were more or less under the rule of the Romans at this time. And they had not been a, a, a sovereign nation really since even the exile. For hundreds of years before, when they had been kicked out of the promised land, when the kingship of the country had been dismantled by God because of their unfaithfulness to him. And all the while, they're holding out to this hope of the promise that this Messiah will come. He will wage war on their enemies, remove them from this promised land, and allow them to be the people they once were, leading them into a greater walk with God. In fact, you can go back in the history books and you will see all kinds of people, uh, basically rebels, uh, guerrilla fighters, who would gather together a small army and, and, and try and resist Rome and do these little guerrilla raids, uh, calling themselves Messiah, calling themselves Christ, uh, seeking to be the fulfillment of the promises. And of course it all came to nothing because they weren't God's Messiah. What we see here, though, is that God was planning something far greater than people were expecting. He wasn't just going to rescue his people from their political enemies. He was going to rescue the world from its mortal enemy, their own sinfulness. Here's the sad reality. Ultimately, sin is at the root of every problem, calamity, and evil in this world. Yes, things happen because of all manner of reasons, from accidents and forgetfulness to disease and disaster, but these things are simply symptoms of a world that is in disorder caused by sin. And the greatest disorder of all is our broken relationship with God himself. It's because of our sin, our rebellion against him and his righteous rule of our lives, over our lives, that the world is in disarray. In our sin, we take every good gift that God gives to us and we either twist it into an idol that we, that we worship in his place or we misuse it as an instrument of violence against other people. And the result of all this is his judgment on us. And God isn't wrong to do that. He is perfectly just and righteous in his judgment of us. He does not give us more than we deserve. In fact, in this life, he gives us far less than we deserve. And because God is perfect in all his being, our sin against him needs to be a perfect judgment as well. In fact, the Bible tells us it's an eternity of condemnation in hell. But the glorious and wondrous truth of the birth of Christ is this. He has come to save us from that judgment. God has sent him to rescue us from the, the judgment that we have piled onto our own heads, the very condemnation that we have brought upon ourselves. Jesus will deliver us from God's wrath and bring us to God. 
And he is especially fit to do this because he himself is sinless. You see, the first man, Adam, stood as the representative of all humanity before God, just as supposedly our representatives from uh, in Congress represent all of our state, our interests, and our well-being. So Adam, as the first man, was our representative before God. And yet during the time of testing, he failed, he sinned, and thus brought condemnation on all of humanity. We are not just condemned because of his sin, though. It is, in fact, an inherited corruption that we ourselves had. The Bible says we are born sinful. We are born with sinful hearts, and therefore we sin. We, we start as, as we're little like that baby who's going to grow up in just a few months and years and start rebelling against her parents, saying no, and, and, and picking up toys and throwing and all kinds of other things. And it will only escalate into fights with friends and, and everything else. We are sinners by nature. Therefore, we need a Savior. In fact, right after the first sin, God preached the first gospel. Right at the, the worst moment in history, God comes in and gives hope. And he gives a promise to Adam and Eve, and he says this, that one day a seed, a descendant of the woman will come, and he will take back which the man had lost. Now, when you read that, you may not get it until you understand our position in Adam. Because all of us are condemned in Adam, we need someone who is not in Adam, someone else to come outside of Adam who will rescue us. Thus, Jesus has no human father. He comes, he comes symbolically not in the line of Adam, not as a child of Adam, but a child of God himself, who now redeems us out from under Adam into himself and into a new relationship with God. And Jesus could do that because he's not just a sinless man, he is also God in the flesh. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, first of all, understand, there's not a contradiction here between the prophecy and Jesus saying, call him Emmanuel and call him Jesus. Emmanuel is like the nickname, God with us. Jesus is meant to be the proper name by which he is addressed. The point here is that Jesus is not just an ordinary child conceived by unordinary means. He is more than that. He is the fulfillment of a prophecy given long ago by Isaiah, which we have been looking at time and time again. He is the perfect mediator between God and man because he is God and man. In his full humanity, he perfectly identified with us in our sin. And yet in his full divinity, he remained sinless and perfect and holy. And the scriptures explain that as God in the flesh, sinless and perfect, Christ offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement to bring us to God. More than that, he was raised back to life to be the perfect king that we need. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he is the risen Savior who stands sovereign over all things. Thus, we can never forget his death, even while we celebrate his birth. It, his birth looks forward to something greater. You know, uh, several, several years ago, Melinda and I will be celebrating our 13th anniversary next year. And uh, 12 and a half years ago was a great day for us. But after we had been married a couple of years, uh, in fact, I think we were attending another wedding. And on the way to the reception, we were talking. And the, and the comment was made and, and more or less agreed upon that it's kind of a shame that you have the big wedding when you first get married. Because you have no idea what's coming. I mean, you just have no idea. 
uh, you have this big wedding and you think you're in love and how can I love you anymore? And then, and then, you, and then, and then marriage actually happens and you go through life. You experience uh, pain and suffering as well as joy together. And suddenly, years out, you, you look back and say, how naive I was. How much more I love this person now. Why can't we have the wedding now? Because, because, because now we understand what we're celebrating, what we're rejoicing in. Well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not calling for us to actually do that. Just making the observation. When, when, you, when you are having the wedding ceremony, you are not celebrating what is. You are celebrating what is to come. And likewise, with the birth of Jesus, there is all kinds of celebration that goes on. There is not only the announcement, the angelic announcement of the virgin birth, but then there is, there is this heavenly host shooting across the night sky when Jesus is actually born. Angels declaring to shepherds, this is your Savior, Magi coming a couple of years later giving worship and giving gifts. And all of that, all of that is pointing forward in anticipation of what is to come, namely the cross and resurrection of Jesus himself. The thing worth celebrating, the thing that should cause our hearts to rejoice and our eyes to weep and our souls to soar with hope is not just the birth of an infant son, but the birth of a Savior who is going to live and die and live again for his people. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. We've seen a supernatural conception, we've seen a sinless Savior, and now we need to see an obedient response. An obedient response. Think about what Joseph must have felt like waking up from that dream. Truly, at one point, he took comfort from the assurance of Mary's godliness and fidelity, but what to make of the baby she was carrying? Furthermore, he's going to be a father of the Messiah. How do you raise a Messiah? How do, how do you raise a, a savior of his people? Furthermore, what are you going to do about the rumors? If Joseph knows and has noticed that Mary is pregnant, surely her family has as well. His family has as well. What are they going to think? What are they going to think of them? What are they going to think of the son who is to be born? You actually read the Gospels, and you will see one of the, one of the things the Pharisees do is hint at the fact that Jesus is an illegitimate child. That's, that's something that even through his life, the rumors he still carried. It's at this point, though, that Joseph's true colors shine through. You know, Hollywood portrays men as buffoons. If you watch movies and television, you would think that we were all selfish, sex-crazed nits who are clueless about life and the world except when it comes to movies, sports, and video games. And sometimes good pizza. The bigger problem is, though, that's often the case with guys today. You have many guys who now have a Peter Pan syndrome. They don't want to grow up. They don't want to take responsibility for their lives. They don't want to act like men and get married and get a mortgage and hold down a job and actually love their wife and kids the way God wanted them to. That's a problem today. But that wasn't Joseph. He revealed a godly character and attitude that went beyond his peers and well beyond the people of our generation. To begin with, Joseph didn't run. He didn't hit the eject button. He doesn't say, well, this is too much for me. Find somebody else. He stays in there. He says, this is God's plan for my life. And, and for better or for worse, I am there. He honors God with his life. He does it in several ways. Matthew tells us, verses 24 and 25, when Joseph awoke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. What did he do? He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. First of all, Mary took his wife. That is to say, he married Mary. 
regardless of the consequences, regardless of the rumors, regardless of what people might think, he kept his promise and he married the one to whom he was betrothed. Secondly, though, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, we can take it in the gutter pretty quick here. We're not going to do that. We just need to say, though, he was willing to put off the consummation of his love for his wife for almost a whole year because that's what God had told him to do because he didn't want there to be any question about whose child this was. Though he would love it and raise it and care for it and teach it as if it was his own, it was God's son. And it was only well after Jesus was born that Mary and Joseph began to have their own children. Then, just as God commanded, Joseph called his name Jesus. One of the most exciting things about having a kid is picking the name. What are you going to call this this blessing from God? Who are you going to name it after? What, what, What thoughts do you want ringing in your ears every time you call out his or her name? And Joseph gives all that up. Honoring his dad, honoring his granddad, whoever it was, he gives all that up because God had commanded him, no, no, no. He's ultimately not your son. He's mine. And he needs to be called Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Every time we say Jesus' name, we are declaring the reason for his life, that he saves sinners for God. In every imaginable way, not just what was asked of him, but beyond that, Joseph obeyed God. He was willing to sacrifice his own well-being to ensure God's design for salvation succeeded. And, you know, because of some of the excesses of Christian tradition, which exalts the parents of Christ above the level of what they should be exalted, there is often a reaction, a devaluing of Mary and Joseph. And I think the appropriate thing to do is is to not make too much of them, but certainly not to make too less of them, but to see them for what they were. Normal, sinful human people who needed a Savior, and yet who were also godly and desiring to love God with their lives. In that way, they are an example to follow. And just as there was an obedient response from Joseph, so now there needs to be an obedient response from us towards God. Just as Joseph was obedient to God and embraced the Christ child, so must we. Not just the child in a manger, but the Lord of salvation. For just as God the Father planned from before all of creation these things, that the infant son would would grow into adulthood and would offer his life for sinners. And as a vindication of that, that offering, he would be risen back to life in glory before his disciples and one day before all people. We must see that, we must believe that, and we must embrace that. Not just today on Christmas Sunday, but every day, every hour, every moment of our lives. We must ask ourselves the question, will we look in faith to Christ as Savior and follow Him as Lord, or will we seek to go our own way, to blaze our own trail? The reality is, one leads to life, and the other only leads to death. Will we trust in, our, in Him Or will we trust in ourselves or some other false savior to make us right with God when we should be living in obedience and faith to the king who purchased us back from the dead? Joseph had every reason to be afraid and selfish and refuse what God was asking him to do, but he didn't. Why? Because he trusted God and he believed his promises. 
And when the day came to hold this miraculous child in his arms, to see this wondrous thing that God had done to begin his journey as the father of this child that wasn't his, he believed. He said to his family, to his friends, to the priest who would dedicate him at the temple, this is Jesus, the Savior of the world. He believed that. He believed that in that child, God was with us. Joseph trusted God's promise. And that way he is no different from us. For that is what we are called to do, to trust the promise of God, that Christ alone can save us from our sins. As Christians, we do that by continuing to believe that God is with us and for us. We believe that he has saved us as sinners. But more than that, he continues to love us and to provide for us and to take care of us. We live by faith in his goodness and his grace with Jesus as our Lord. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you've never come to a place of receiving Christ, will you today believe that Jesus did what God said he would do? He saved sinners. Not by fighting a battle, not by giving you self-esteem or by giving you power or wealth, but by dying for your sins and rising again. Will you believe turning from a life of rebellion and sin, knowing that the things that you're doing will only lead you to a life in hell? Will you look to Christ in faith, trusting Him to be your Savior, the Savior that you need to make you right with God? The hymn writer Philip Brooks was right when he wrote this. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, thy silent years go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth, shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But Brooks was also a pastor who believed that truth needed to be believed. And so he wrote also the last stanza. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. May that be our prayer this Christmas Sunday. Father, we rejoice in this Christmas story. We rejoice in the work that you did to accomplish salvation for us. Father, the virgin birth says, no one can bring about salvation. It is something that you must do. And God, you still continue to do that. You bring us into relationship with you. You save us from our sins, not when we do something, not when we live the right way, but when we trust Jesus. And so God, I pray that that would be the great joy of our hearts today, to look to him in faith, believing that all that you said about him, that all that he did was true. God, we pray all these things, even as we continue to celebrate this day named after Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.